Thank you all for coming. Whenever there's a range of seminars such as are offered at New Horizon, I always feel incredibly humbled. Not that I'm saying you're all here to hear from me. It's primarily from um, John Wyatt, and we are delighted to have uh, Professor Wyatt with us today. Marion and I are here representing Both Lives Matter. We did a seminar last year, and we won't really be talking about the um, breadth of the campaign that we represent. Um, today's seminar will focus primarily and mostly exclusively on incidences where uh, a child is diagnosed in the womb with a condition which may prove fatal. Um, Within the context of Northern Ireland, there are on average 24,000 live births every year. There are approximately 100 cases a year of a diagnosis such as this. The small number does not indicate um, that I'm saying those cases are not important. What I am saying is that there is no reason why as a society we cannot offer best care and world-leading care for 100 families. Professor Wyde is going to help us to look at what that care can be from his own experience in practicing medicine as a paediatrician in Great Britain, where termination is often the expected or assumed um, decision upon the receiving such a diagnosis. In Northern Ireland, you will know that there is um, a loud pro-abortion lobby. And often these cases are used to force through significant and radical law change. I'm just going to reference briefly recent events. So in July, Westminster voted to remove the existing law on abortion that we currently have in Northern Ireland. So on the 21st of October, or if Stormont is not back by the 21st of October, the law that we have, which is the 1861 Offences Against the Person Act, sections 58 and 59, will be repealed. So on the 22nd of October, it will be possible to um, rephrase every explicit legal protection for unborn babies up to 28 weeks will be removed. Now these cases of a potential diagnosis of a fatal abnormality Oh, <laughs> I thought that was somebody. These cases of a potential or diagnosis of a potential fatal abnormality have been used in large part to drive through that extreme radical change. Regardless of what happens after October, those 100 families will always need cared for. So what can we do in Northern Ireland? We will at the very end reflect on action points to do with that proposed law change. But as I said, the purpose of this seminar is to think about those tiny babies diagnosed in the womb with a terminal illness or a severe abnormality. So I'm going to invite Professor Wyatt up, and um, I'd like you all to welcome him, please.
Well, thanks very much, Dawn. It's a real um, privilege for me to be here and to be able to um, give you some background of my own, uh, from my own experience and also to support uh, the work of Both Life Matters. I think, I think you know, what's going on here is, is, is fantastic, actually. You're, you're a gold standard of, a, of, a, of what a Christian uh, response to abortion can be. And uh, in that way, you know, you can have a real influence, not just here in Northern Ireland, but wider on the mainland as well. Um, and I think what's particularly uh, wonderful about this uh, slogan, Both Lives Matters, is that in the secular debate about abortion, so often the way it is presented is in terms of conflict. It is, it is a battle between the woman and her unborn baby. And, it's, and, and their interests are totally uh, in opposition, and you have to choose one or the other. It's either the baby or it's the woman. And this is a completely false, and if I may say so, satanic way of, prevent, of presenting the, the, the reality of human pregnancy. Because the reality is is that what is good for the woman is good for the baby, and what is good for the baby is good for the woman. The way that God has created it is, is far from this bizarre idea that the, that the woman and the baby are in conflict, is that a new life is coming into the world because in the woman's body, and the woman is providing hospitality to this little stranger in her womb. That is the... That is a Christian way of, of understanding. And that's creation. That's the way God made it. So I think by standing up for creation, for the wonder of pregnancy, without in any sense trying to sanitize or some of the difficulties and the pain, um, I, I want to say that the, that the way we talk about these issues as Christian people is incredibly important. Uh, I had the great privilege of... Um, of, of having John Stott as a spiritual father to me in, in, in London. I went to All Souls Church for many years, still do. And he was a spiritual father to me as he was to so many other people there and had a huge influence on my life. And in fact, to be honest, humanly speaking, the reason I'm standing up here and doing what I'm doing is because of him and what he modeled for me. And one of the things that he frequently would, would say is that the way we engage in the public arena is, is even more important from what we actually say. We have to engage in a Christ-like way, Christianly. And actually, he would say, it's more important, even if you lose the argument, but you lose it in a Christian way, in a Christ-like way, that's better than winning the argument, but doing it in a, a vicious, unchristian way dogmatic, judgmental way. So, if you like, whenever we talk about abortion, and we, sh we must talk about it with tears in our eyes, not with judgment and rhetoric in our voices. And I, I think the other thing that comes behind this, and I just want to remind you of those beautiful words in John's Gospel, that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So if you just have grace by itself, grace 
is very compassionate, very warm, but actually grace without truth is a lie and it's powerless. If you just have truth by itself, truth by itself can be very judgmental, it can be destructive, it can be damaging, and truth by itself, we've all come across examples where people use truth in a way which is actually very damaging and destructive. But if you have grace and truth intimately linked and integrated, then you have something amazing and unique. What you have is the very character of the Lord Jesus himself. And that is uniquely powerful. And, and so when we engage in this area, we must engage with grace and truth, holding those two together. And I hope in this seminar we can try and model that. You know, as, as we engage with these issues, we try and do it, yes, with truth, with honesty, but at the same time with grace. And that also means that it, certainly on the mainland, any gathering like this, there would be tens of people, if not hundreds of people, who've been personally affected by abortion. The statistics on the mainland in, in the, is that one in three women will have an abortion in their lifetime. And for every woman, there's a man. And, this, and I would like to say that the statistics are totally different inside the Christian church, but all the evidence is they're not. And therefore, in any gathering, there are numerous people sitting there who are have been personally affected by abortion in some kind of way and yet it's like it's never spoken about it's a hidden secret and you know i don't know anything about you but i would guarantee there are people here who've been affected personally by abortion someone in your family you yourself somebody known to you and so on so these are things which touch all of us they're not just issues out there in society they they touch us here and just another introductory remark, and that is that there is something particularly spiritually obscene about abortion. And I don't say, again, if you've been personally affected, I don't want in any sense to say that abortion is a unique sin and it can't be. Of course it can be forgiven. And in fact, abortion is not the greatest sin. But there is something particularly spiritually significant about this. This is not the same as some other issues that Christians get involved with, like food banks or so on. And, and there are at least two reasons why this is the case. And it's more even than the destruction of a human life. Did you know that in the Hebrew of the Old Testament, a word which is used time and time again is the word God as a God of compassion. It's a particular Hebrew word. It comes Time and time again, this is the character, one of the, one of the main features of, of God revealed in the Old Testament. He sees it as a God of compassion. That word in Hebrew, rahamim, is derived from the word for womb. It is, and, and the biblical scholars say this is deliberate. The, the compassion of the father is the compassion of the womb. And... I mean, one way of saying that is, that is that the God who is revealed in the Old Testament is a motherly father. God has tied his very nature with the womb. And therefore, the womb is meant to be a place of security, a place of safety, a place of, of where compassion is actually expressed, uh, a place of hospitality. Uh, so there's a, there's, there's a huge significance just in the, in the 
in the very name of the Father in the Old Testament. But then something happens even more bizarrely, and, and we're so familiar with the story of the Incarnation that we've forgotten how totally shocking it is. Because the God of the universe, the God of total power and authority, invades the womb. And he turns himself into this tiny little fragile, vulnerable being. And you remember when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, her cousin, just after the news from the angel. And um, the babe inside Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy. And you can roughly work out that Elizabeth is about seven months pregnant. But Mary is probably no more than two or three weeks pregnant. And yet Elizabeth, filled by the Holy Spirit, says, Blessed are you, Mary, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how can it be that the mother of my Lord has come to me? In other words, my Lord is about two millimeters. This tiny little speck inside Mary's womb. And yet Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, recognizes the Lord. And so there is something even more precious about the womb uh, in the New Testament because God himself has invaded the womb. He's made this a sacred space. And so then do you see something about the spiritual obscenity about abortion and the reality of abortion that's going across the world? Because it's like the evil one says, I am going to take this sacred space and I am going to turn it into the killing fields. And the womb becomes the most dangerous place for a child. You know, on the mainland, the most dangerous place for a child is the mother's womb. And it's like the evil one is spitting in the face of the, of the father and saying, Aha, what do you think about your special place now? So there is, there is a particular spiritual significance here. And that's why whenever we engage in this battle, we must remember that it's a spiritual battle. The evil one is here. He thinks this is his territory. And how do we respond in a spiritual battle? The primary way we respond in a spiritual battle is through prayer. And so this, perhaps the single most important thing is to, is to encourage, I know you are praying, but it's to say, just to encourage you even more. This is a spiritual battle, and the spiritual battle depends on prayer. So just to talk about my own uh, experience, my, um, I have worked as a, as a pediatrician specializing in the care of newborn babies for uh, more than 30 years. My that's called a neonatologist. It just means a, a pediatrician with special care for babies. And I, I've worked in a big intensive care unit in central London, uh, caring for uh, all kinds of babies, many of them extremely premature babies. And we go right down to the limits of viability. I've, I've now retired from the front line as a, as a doctor, but still engaged in, in ethics and academic work. Um, but the smallest babies we care for are literally 22, 23 weeks gestation, weighing 500 grams or less, and literally fitting in the palm of my hand. And um, we invest a huge amount of resources in trying to ensure the possibility that these babies will survive. 
Uh, and the NHS, you know, it, it, sometimes it would cost £50,000, £100,000 to ensure the survival of an extremely premature baby. But all paid for by the NHS, huge team of professional doctors and neonatal nurses and specialists, very expensive equipment. So we as a society seem to be saying that these lives are incredibly precious, they're worth investing in, they're important and so on. And yet just one floor away in our hospital is the fetal medicine unit. And here, pregnant women from all over London and the southeast are referred if an abnormality of the unborn baby is found. Uh, sophisticated technology, scans, genetic testing and so on. Even now doing fetal MRIs, um, getting very detailed pictures of, of the unborn baby. But if an abnormality of the baby is found, then mothers will be offered an abortion. And because of the way the law works in the mainland, it's actually legal for an abortion to be carried out for a medical reason at any stage in the pregnancy, all the way up till term. And so on a regular basis in my hospital, in, uh, where I've worked, Abortions are carried out at 24 weeks, 26 weeks, 28 weeks, 30 weeks, 32 weeks, and beyond. And many times I was asked as a pediatrician to go and talk to a woman who was, who's been found that there's something very abnormal about her baby and has been considering, she's been offered the possibility of having an abortion. And... Uh, She's, I've gone up to talk to her, and the baby in her womb is considerably bigger and tougher and stronger than some of the babies we're trying to save one floor down. And you, and you say to yourself, how is it possible in one health service and in one NHS for these two completely contradictory activities to be going on? And, and that's the reality of working uh, in the modern NHS on the mainland, and, uh, and it does lead to all kinds of sort of complexities and confusions and, um, and painful reality. Um, but over the years, I've had the privilege of caring for a whole number of babies who've had major malformations and what used to be called fatal or lethal abnormalities. We don't use that language any longer, and we tend to use now the phrase a life-limiting abnormality. And the reason for that is that, in fact, to say that something is a fatal abnormality can actually be a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you think the baby's going to die, then you won't do any care after birth, and then the baby will die. Whereas, actually, what we've discovered is that if you provide even sort of basic support for, pe for babies who you thought were going to die, some of them will live for weeks, months, even years. Um, so that that's why we now talk about life-limiting abnormalities rather than being universally fatal. And over the years, I must, have, I must have cared for tens, probably more than 100 babies with, and I had the privilege of caring for them, and, 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 and many of them dying in my presence, sometimes dying in my arms. And... Um, you know, the strange thing as a baby doctor, I must have cared for, over my career, maybe 10,000 babies or more, been at countless numbers of deliveries and so on. But actually, you know, now I've uh, retired from my work, the babies that stand out in my mind are the dying babies. Those are the ones that I remember, and actually with a very uh, sense of fulfillment. You know, I couldn't make them better, we couldn't, but actually we could be there for them. 
And I've learned to see the profound privilege of caring for dying babies. So part of the problem is that particularly for an obstetrician, somebody who cares for pregnant women, if a diagnosis of one of these very rare abnormalities, which is likely to lead to death, is made, then abortion seems like the obvious, neat medical solution. You know, medics are not philosophers. They're not, they're not um, campaigners. They're basically problem solvers. That's what it means to be a doctor. You're there and someone has come to you with a problem and I'm going to try and fix it. And here's this woman and she has a problem. The baby has got some abnormality and, and it's going to cause all kinds of difficulties and challenges. And the obvious fix is to have an abortion. It solves the problem. There you are. I've solved your problem. You can go away. But the reality is totally different from that. Uh, the reality is that, um, that, that the, the so-called solution often creates far more profound difficulties than you would think. There's lots of objective scientific evidence showing that when an abortion is carried out for a medical reason, either because the baby has some kind of disability or would have been disabled if the baby survived, or because the baby has a life-limiting abnormality, what the studies show is that there's a, a deeper and a longer-lasting and intense psychological reaction of grief and sometimes depression and sometimes suicidal thoughts and, and so on than the, quote, normal kind of abortion, which is done for social reasons. Now, the medics find that completely paradoxical, Many do, because you would think, well, having an abortion for a medical reason because the baby's disabled, well, that's the obvious thing to do. That's a very good thing to do. Whereas having an abortion because you just need to go on holiday or because it's going to affect my, my uh, education, well, that, surely that would create all kinds of ambivalence. But actually, the evidence, paradoxically, is the reverse. And there are complicated psychological reasons why that is, but it's pretty obvious that uh, very often this diagnosis is made later on in the, in the pregnancy. So the woman is, is clearly pregnant, usually. And what's more, everybody else knows she's pregnant. Um, and this is a baby that she's been looking forward to, to meet the baby. And, and then comes this shocking, catastrophic news, which, which when it comes is often... Mothers and, and, and parents, fathers, find it almost impossible to absorb that this baby that they've been longing for and looking forward to meeting now has this rare thing they've never heard about. Uh, and then they go onto the internet and they see pictures and the doctor's talking to them in this very negative stuff. And, and, and so parents are often incredibly shocked. They're confused. They find themselves in this very painful an emotionally charged situation that they never imagined themselves. And often they ask this question, well, how do people respond in this situation? I've never even dreamed of this. How do, well, how do you respond? So as a result, the mothers are incredibly open to suggestion. They're, they're incredibly open to influence. And the first person and the major person they influence is the doctor in front of them who has just given them the diagnosis. And so what they pick up so often from the gynecologist is a sort of sense of revulsion. You know, there's this, there's this horrible thing in your womb, and it's, it's really, you know, very 
difficult and abnormal and 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 to the doctor it seems the obvious thing to do is just get rid of it get rid of it and then start again and have another baby and so so easily the mother picks this up and sometimes the doctors actually make it worse because they're so convinced that the right thing to do is to have an abortion is that they actually either intentionally or unintentionally make the situation much worse than it actually is they make the diagnosis much worse. You know, babies with this thing, they suffer terribly. You know, your child, we don't want your child to suffer. And also, you know, if you were to continue the pregnancy, you might be damaging your own fertility. You know, you, you might be able to ever have any other children again. And all these kind of negative suggestions are... And in this very emotionally vulnerable stage, it's not surprising that, um, that the parents pick up these vibes... And, and then come to the conclusion that the only realistic option is to have a, uh, an abortion. But from my own practical clinical experience, I am absolutely convinced that if you can only help parents to see that there is an alternative, there's an alternative, which is that we're going to do the best for you and we're going to do the best for your baby. And what we can do is that we can make sure that your baby gets the very possible best care it may be that your baby is only going to live minutes or hours or days, but what's, we can make sure that those hour, minutes, hours and days are really significant and we're going to be there for you and here's all the different things we can do. And uh, our experience is that when you show that and you, and you give examples of illustrations of the positive way that you can go forward in, uh, in caring for the baby that many women, including many who don't have any kind of Christian or spiritual belief, many people just coming from an entirely secular position, they can see that actually that's a better way. That rather than destroying their baby, but actually doing the best for their baby and being there and caring for them, however long they're going to live. And so this whole development of palliative care for newborn babies has really taken off on the mainland, and is now seen as a sort of mainstream thing that people like me, neonatologists, do. And I'm very proud of the fact that I've been able, in a little way, to contribute that and to try and promote this idea of palliative care for newborn babies. Um, and it is very much based around a Christian understanding that every life is precious. Every life matters. However long it is, every baby is special. Sometimes you may hear this term perinatal hospice, this is a phrase which has come from the States where they use the, the word hospice in a rather different way. I personally believe that palliative care for newborn babies is a better way of talking about it. And that's because it links in with palliative care. Everybody knows about palliative care for old people and palliative care for children. Well, the principles are exactly the same. When we care for a newborn baby, there's no fundamental difference from the way we would care for an older person dying of cancer. The, the principles of palliative care are the same. And that is that we're not trying to extend life as much as possible, nor are we trying to shorten life as much as possible. What we're trying to do is allow death to occur by natural processes while we focus on maximizing the quality of life. So the whole aim of palliative care is to make however short or long this baby's life is going to be, we're going to maximize the quality. And obviously that means we're going to make sure that the baby doesn't suffer. 
And so one of the things that's often used that obstetricians say, well, you don't want your baby to suffer and, you know, there's a terrible pain involved. Well, I'm afraid that is complete rubbish. If a baby is suffering, that's basically because they're receiving inadequate care. There's absolutely no reason in 2019 why any baby has to suffer. We have a whole range of very sophisticated medical treatments to ensure that babies don't suffer. And, and babies don't suffer. I mean, you know, all babies go through an experience. Did you know that the single most frightening thing that's ever going to happen in your life has already happened? Do you know what that was? Being born. If you measure the adrenaline levels of a baby born by a normal vaginal delivery just after birth, they are higher than they ever are in the rest of your life. So being born is absolutely terrifying. And yet, here we all are. We're not all completely screwed up. So I think, you know, what happens to babies is pretty bizarre. We're all babies, but, you know, what happens to a baby with with a, a life-limiting abnormality is not that different from what would happen to any baby. Um, but we can make sure that babies don't suffer. Um, but also we can support parents through the whole experience. Uh, so what would happen in this situation is that someone like me would sit down and talk to the parents in advance, before birth, and we would plan with them, almost stage-manage what was going to happen when the baby was born. And we would, um, you know, if in some situations it's pretty likely that the baby will actually die very rapidly, might be either born tragically dead or would just simply not be able to survive more than a few minutes, then we would stage manage it to make sure that a pediatrician was there at birth, that the, we would be there to dry the baby and put the baby into baby clothes or blankets and then get them into the mother's arms so that even if the baby only lives for minutes... She can be there with her baby, and we will be there to support her. And uh, th the beautiful thing about this is that, you know, those minutes that you have, sometimes only minutes or hours with a the baby, they will stay with them, those parents for the rest of their life. And they will look back to them with sadness, but also with joy. You know, they, there is something about this is our child. And those photographs, you know, and the little name bracelet from around the from around the, the wrist or the ankle, those memories, those cards. As soon as the baby is born, it's a social event. Everybody knows. So the grandparents are there, the friends, the siblings. And we try and make the hospitals as friendly as possible. So you've got all this crowd of people just being there, uh, experiencing, being there at this very precious time, um, however long or short it will be. And, and that means that, that afterwards, when the, when the parents go home, you know, and sometimes, you know, was this all this a bizarre dream? You know, was there actually a baby? Because I've gone home and my arms are empty. But actually, there are all these people, these witnesses. We were there with you, and here are the photographs, and, here's, and we were there. And, and we're going to support you through this grieving process. So, so the whole grief, yes, there is grief, and there are tears, and there's loss, and it goes on. But it's surrounded in this support and this positive thing that I did the best for my baby. I was there. I cared for her. I know she didn't suffer. I, was, I remember the look on her face. Now you compare that with what happens with a late abortion. Here's someone at 20 weeks, 24 weeks or more. And they've discovered that this baby has the, uh, 
has has this problem and and they they have the procedure itself the procedure can be very traumatic sometimes uh, certainly on the mainland, these procedures are performed without any kind of anaesthetic, just with a local anaesthetic, but no general anaesthetic. Um, the father is there, sometimes watching on the screen what's happening. There have been statistics showing that parents sometimes have sort of post-traumatic stress disorder after these events. They have flashbacks, memories of things that were said. Uh, but then the whole instinct is, we've got to keep this quiet. Nobody must know what's happened. So, so the, the usual thing that happens is they don't tell anybody. You know, sometimes even the extended family don't know. Uh, and the whole thing is that it has a sense of almost obscure sense of shame. We've got to keep this all quiet. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that's strange. You were pregnant last week and you're not pregnant. Oh, I can't talk about it. Please, let's just change the subject. You know, it's just too, too painful, too difficult. And, so, and, and, and then, you know, it goes on weeks and months later. You're walking down the street and you see a, an obviously disabled child in a buggy and you're thinking, is that what my child would look like? And maybe the doctor's got it wrong. Maybe the baby wasn't going to die. And so there's a, there's a sort of, was I being selfish? You know, so, so there's a sort of ambivalence and, and, and what the psychologists call a complicated grief. People who've, who've done this, there's grief. But it's a complicated grief. It's psychologically complicated. I, I sort of colluded. I was part of it. It's difficult. You know, did I do the right thing? Did I not do the right thing? You know, I didn't have any choice. The doctor said I had to do it. I didn't have any choice. Very complicated. So, whereas I think that what my experience, the death that happens, the neonatal death, even if it happens only hours or days, minutes, is, is a clean grief. I did the best for my baby. Yes, it was tragic, you know. I, I lost the baby, but we did the best. And, and what's more, it's a shared grief. All these people around us, we can share it together. So, I am utterly convinced that this is a better way. You know, whenever as Christian people we say that something is wrong, it's not good enough to stop there. We must immediately go on and say, and here is a better way. You know, it, yes, this is wrong, but here is a better way. Here is a more compassionate response. Here is a more human response. Here is a response which matches the way that God has made us. And, and what I've seen is that the, 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 the lives of these little babies can have an astonishing impact on other people. So this was brought home to me very powerfully when um, a, a very good friend uh, of ours at All Souls Church, they were diagnosed with having a rare genetic abnormality called Edwards Syndrome, which is uh, one of these life-limiting abnormalities. It was their first baby. They were absolutely devastated. They were under a lot of pressure to have an abortion. But in the end, they said, how can we destroy the baby that God has given us? And little baby was Christopher was born. And to everyone's surprise, he didn't die straight away. But in fact, they, he lived for several months. They were able to take him home. And they used to bring him along to All Souls Church, where he became like a mini-celebrity. Everybody wanted to know about baby Christopher, and everybody wanted to have a cuddle. And he used to get passed from arm to arm. Everybody wanted... And he was this very quiet, little, placid baby. And he lived for seven months. And then he got weaker and weaker, and he died very peacefully at home. And when he died, he was still exactly the same weight as when he was born. He was five pounds when he was born, and he was five pounds when he died. 
And there was a memorial service at All Souls, and 400 people turned up to pay tribute to this tiny little pathetic baby. And as one of Alan and Verity's friends said, although Christopher couldn't grow, he helped other people to grow. And the truth was that that tiny little baby had a huge impact on hundreds of lives. And I wrote up the story in my book, Matters of Life and Death, and baby Christopher continues to have an impact as people read that story. And I've often told that story in secular conferences on medical ethics. I found that that story can penetrate into some hardened professor of medical ethics in the way that all my other arguments don't. But that story gets home because it's true and it's real. But for a secular person, it ought not to be true. It doesn't make any sense from a secular point of view. But of course, from a Christian point of view, it makes total sense that God's, even the tiny, pathetic, malformed baby is made in God's image and is a unique and precious being. And sometimes God comes to us and reaches out to us and speaks to us in the person of the most weak, in the person of the most vulnerable, the most malformed, the most disabled. These are the people that we see God's image. We see God's presence uh, in our midst. And we are there to offer them hospitality. So I could say a lot more, but I'm going to close, and, but then there'll be a chance for Q&A. Um, perhaps just to close with these wonderful words which Joseph Piper, a Christian philosopher, said, Love is a way of saying to another person, it's good that you're alive. It's good that you're in the world. The trouble with abortion and euthanasia is it says exactly the opposite. It says it's bad that you're in the world. It'd be much better for the world if you didn't exist. But love always says it's good that you exist. It's good that you're in the world. And so this is a practical way of saying that, of demonstrating the reality of it. It's good that you exist. However long and short your life is, it's good that you exist. It's good that you're in the world. It's really unfair that I have to follow that. (laughs) Um, Thank you very much, um, Professor Wyatt, for... for, um, I I just could listen to you all day and hear more stories, and it's really powerful. And and I think, for me, um, sometimes Don and I will talk about imposter syndrome, um, where we feel very much like we're not really sure what our role in this space um, is. Um, And um, whenever you have somebody like Professor Wyatt come along and really speak to what we truly believe in our hearts and is our vision for Both Lives Matter and um, it really helps to affirm what we say um, and it really helps us to feel um, more confident as well getting up to speak to such um, an amazing crowd. Thank you all for being here. Um, so as we said or Don said earlier on we did talk last year um, about the campaign and, and I'm not going to go over that now but what I want to do is just very very briefly follow up to explain what we are are putting into action or trying to put into action 
there's no one group or no one campaign or no one organisation in Northern Ireland that can do this by themselves. It is collaborative and that's, uh, that is very much at the heart of what we do. As Dawn said at the start, in Northern Ireland we know that there are about a hundred of these cases every year where a family finds out that the baby that they are carrying may or looks like they will be born with a condition that will prove um, life-limiting. Language is really important and it struck me when Professor Wyatt was speaking. That is something that we hear again and again. You'll know that in our media today, um, it's the term fetal fetal abnormality that is used. Now, we have tried to push back against that. Indeed, um, the chair of the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists in Northern Ireland met with Dawn and myself and she actually said that she was trying to push against that. Unfortunately, since that meeting, she has now succumbed to that language and and uses it herself, but we have tried as much as we can to push against it because we're speaking to families that are impacted and they have told us how painful it is if their child is living for whatever length of time, but if they have a two-year-old or three-year-old with one of these conditions how hard it is to hear their child referred to as a fatal fetal abnormality. So like Professor Wyatt, we try to refer to life-limiting conditions, and I would encourage everybody, if you are talking about that, just to think carefully about that language and how it makes people feel. On the flip side of the coin, however, we have also spoken to people who have been through terminations for this reason. And again, hearing you know the pain in their Um, voice and the pain of their experience whenever they talk about that journey we're very aware that one of the big issues is that they don't want to feel alone on that journey we've heard you know people refer to not wanting to have to explain what is going on feeling vulnerable in a crowd whenever they are visibly pregnant and so that's where we want to meet the women meet the partners the families and the grandparents and provide support and care to walk with them during that very what could be a very painful journey for them but hopefully as professor white said looking back could be one that is full of grief but joy too Um, And so with that in mind, we set up um, a services page, um, not solely for this issue, but looking at this issue too, on our website, where we want to try and gather um, as many resources as possible, whether that's access to counselling, whether it's just access to um, care that can be provided within a a church community, um, a secular community, um, whether it's looking at making links with groups that deal with um, specifically with, for example, a trisomy condition, that would be a group like soft um, in Ireland or in the UK um, and being able to direct people to the support that they can gain um, and that they can have while they're going through this journey. Our greatest vision and our greatest dream would be to provide this care um, in a centre where somebody could come um, and avail of whatever it is that they need. At the minute that's still very much a dream and very much in the pipework um, but just to say that for now if you know of any service that could be used to help families um, in this situation, please let us know because we would love to meet with those people providing that service and then we would love to actually advocate for and promote that service um, on our website. So like I say, it's about providing, we believe that Northern Ireland could be world leading in providing this care for women and their families um, and that's what we aim to do. Thank you. I'm going to open the floor in just a minute for questions and answers. I'm sure there are people who have questions for Professor Wyatt. 
I do want to reiterate that nothing that was said today was intentionally um, was meant to hurt anyone in this room who has undergone a termination, knows someone who has had an abortion. Pregnancy crisis, for whatever reason, is real. Um, women experiencing pregnancy crisis very often feel that uh, they're on their own and they can see no way out. Nothing that we're doing is designed or is meant to judge those women or label them. What we want to do is provide a society that offers better. We have stories on our website, women who have experienced pregnancy crisis for many different reasons. And the pain that they feel having undergone a termination, as Professor Watt has said, often leads to years of what-ifs. And there's a lie that women are often told that you'll have another chance, there'll be another baby. And you know what? Often that is not the case. None of us is in control of our fertility. The lie of bodily autonomy and control is that we can pick and choose when we have our children, and we can't. And there's one woman's story on our website who's now about my age. We were about the same age when we each had a pregnancy crisis. My daughter is now 25. She terminated because no one would support her. Her boyfriend said he wouldn't support her. Her friends and family said, you're not in a good place, you don't have a secure job, etc., etc. She's now in her 40s, and as she said, she never had another chance. And she has to live with that. This is not about judging women. This is about saying that a society that tells women they can control their bodies, control their fertility, and it's just like any other medical procedure, like a cosmetic procedure, for example... Those are lies that hurt women and end the lives of tiny babies. I'm going to open the floor for questions and answers, but I do just want to draw your attention to these little postcards. You'll see on the front of the postcard, this is baby Paul. Now, Paul is not his real name, but this is a baby born in Belfast a number of years ago. He's now actually 24. Um, so it is a few years ago, but he was born at 27 weeks plus two days. We've used that image to highlight what has happened at Westminster, that baby Paul, under this new proposed abortion regime, would not be protected in law. Now, there is one way to stop this happening And that is for Stormont to return. And before you all burst into laughter and say, that's a joke. Over 60,000 emails have been sent to MLAs and MPs. And the party leaders in Northern Ireland have received all of those emails. Bless them. We've maybe broken their email inboxes. We would love for you to take the time. We are not directing you to do this. But these little postcards are now the next stage of that campaign. We are hopeful that the new abortion regime will not come into Northern Ireland. Partly because of little babies like Paul who receive a diagnosis. Or sorry, Paul did not receive a diagnosis. But babies that Professor Wyatt has been talking about who can be this age and have received a diagnosis. But they can have a life that is worth living even for a very short time.
And I loved, in the context of love, love says your life matters. Abortion says your life doesn't matter and you won't be remembered. We know that those babies are remembered. And we're asking you to help us create a society, no matter what the law says, that says those babies will always matter. I'm going to invite Professor Wyatt back up. And um, I would ask you not to shout out, to raise your hand. We will repeat the question. Marion as well, if anybody's any. Um, We will repeat the question just for the purposes of the recording. um, And then the best person to answer will answer. Um, So as I said, please just do raise your hand. Um, A question about statistics and are they ever wrong, the diagnosis? Yes. Um, so you're absolutely right. It does happen. And it's happened, to be honest, on a number of occasions in my own clinical experience where parents were told confidently that the baby had condition X and was going to die. And it turned out that actually the baby had something completely different and didn't die. And, uh, and parents are understandably shocked about that. There are s- some statistics available um, but not very much is the honest answer. And again, I'm afraid that, that, that gynecologists are often not, not honest with people about the possibility of, of error. And sometimes, I mean, I've been involved, I have to say, in, in, in tragic case where an abortion was carried out because the baby was thought to have a, a, a life-limiting abnormality, a genetic abnormality, and after birth, the post-mortem showed that the baby was completely normal. And I was the one who had to explain what had actually happened to the mother, and um, it was a terrible, tragic disaster. So, yes, medical disasters happen. Um, Sorry, just to add to that, the most recent example here, um, in terms of... um, uh, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland was um, in Hollis Street several months ago um, where there was a couple who had been told by their doctors, their medical team that their baby was going to have a condition that was going to be life-limiting, proof fatal. Um, they went through tests. It was a three-step test process. They were put under immense pressure during that testing process. And if you remember, the law just changed in the Republic last year and the new law had come into effect in January. So this was within this year. Um, and by the time the second test had come back, they were under so much pressure that they went ahead with the termination. The third test came back and the baby didn't have the condition that the doctor said. So that's the most recent example here. Is there anything that we can do as a community, as a society, to support women who feel that they have no choice? Um, So broadening it out beyond a a diagnosis which may prove fatal or life-limiting, we often say when when Marion and I are doing church talks that, as Professor White said, I don't doubt that there are people in this room who have had a pregnancy crisis. But do you know what? For most women, and 98% of terminations in GB are for social socioeconomic reasons. For most women, all it takes is for their family and friends to say, you're not on your own. You can do this. For each woman, it's very different what the crisis is. And there may be a need for statutory services. There may be a need to be linked to um, external counselling provision or support groups. But a lot of times, the women who have come to us with their stories, they just needed their family or friends to say, you matter, it's maybe not the best time, 
It's going to look tough in some ways, but you can do this. And in a lot of cases, that's all that a woman needs to hear. But it does mean that it's not a quick fix. You know, we often say to trust a woman is easy. It doesn't cost you anything. You know, if, if Marion turned to me and said, I have a pregnancy crisis, and I said, well, I trust you to, you know, choose abortion. I don't have to do anything. If, on the other hand, I say, do you know what? You can do this. I maybe need to invest my time, my energy, my resources for a long time, just like Rosaria has been talking about radical hospitality. You know, like we're all sitting going, wow, imagine inviting these people to live with you for three months. How many of us would be prepared to do that? I was actually saying to, to John earlier, so we had had this fantastic evening um, talk about radical hospitality, and then it was like a monsoon, do you remember? I couldn't get across the road because nobody would stop their car <laughs> to let people. Or say in the tent in the morning, yeah, great talk, but um, it's coffee time, cheerio. You know, we walk over, um, we forget, we set it aside. This matters. And we're not here to just say no to abortion. We are not forced birthers, any of us. This is about saying yes to life, but that's going to cost us all. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And can I just add to that? So my wife has for many years run a, a crisis pregnancy center in, in London. Uh, it's, it's a Christian organization. It's founded on these principles of grace and truth. But it presents itself on the website as an entirely neutral, independent, a safe place where people were going to can find support, counseling, advice. Um, and... Uh, it's actually a wonderful ministry, a Christian ministry, which is just reaching out in compassion. Um, they provide honest information. If, for women who decide to continue the pregnancy, they provide practical support. So they have a befriending program. They have a baby equipment. Um, a light, uh, so you can loan free equipment and baby clothes, uh, all donated by churches in London. And um, they pr provide advice about getting benefits and all this kind of stuff. So it's a practical, compassionate, positive, put, putting our money where our mouth is, saying these lives matter. And you're right, it's costly, but it's a wonderful Christian ministry. And as a result of, of, of choices, you know, there are more than 100 children who are alive um, whose parents have found the courage to continue the pregnancy uh, through the support that they've received. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm not surprised you were shaking. Thank you. And, and we absolutely agree. And we were talking briefly earlier that the point of diagnosis can predict the outcome if the language is used, which is worst case scenario. And actually what you've just said, um, Professor White was saying, you know, Nobody talks about the 24,000 babies, you know, and, oh, you know, one in three will have mental health. And, you know, we don't get those predictions of worst-case scenario. And yet there's no one here who has children who doesn't actually have tough times with their children. I'm actually going to go straight to the, the lady at the back because I sense it's probably going to be a similar... Um, yes. Um, we, we possibly all want, want to say something. I think facts matter. So it's very important to look at the statistics around the reasons for termination of pregnancy. 98% of terminations are for socioeconomic reasons. Less than 2% are for disability. Um, and that's 
Out of 206,000 terminations last year, 2% of those are for disability. We need to talk about the value of those disabled babies and we need to hold a a mirror up to society for the 98% of terminations where there are healthy babies and physically healthy women. So we need to talk honestly about that and then within that 2%, we must never present termination of pregnancy because there's a fault with that baby as the default assumption, whether that's because there's a diagnosis of disability or a possibly terminal abnormality or illness or cases of sexual crime. Now, the stats around sexual crime are unknown, um, but we must never say that a baby who's been conceived in rape doesn't matter because of the circumstances of conception. It's possibly one of the most difficult subjects to talk about because there is an abuse of that woman and the trauma from that. But again, reflecting on women who have conceived in rape, hearing from them as to how that pregnancy and the baby they may now have or not, how that has helped them to live their lives and survive that experience. We assume often as society that termination fixes the abuse that they have undergone, and we have to question that assumption. Yeah, no, thanks. I I totally agree with that. And and, um, unfortunately, you know, our opponents and the the pro-abortion lobby are extremely sophisticated and very clever, and they have no hesitation in manipulating and twisting the truth to make it seem that these hard cases are the mainstream and and, and so I, I think we do have to just patiently keep reminding people of the truth uh, unfortunately this these deep prejudices towards disabil- disability i mean it's it's very deep rooted in the medical profession paradoxically i mean there are there's evidence that shows that actually uh, doctors are more um, anxious about disability and death than the general population. The, 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 the doctors actually have greater fears about disability, greater uh, anxieties. The, doctors always think of themselves as being the gold standard, you know, I'm the normal. Actually, doctors are very skewed. They're, they're, they're a very sort of unusual bunch. Uh, and unfortunately, they have enormous power. And I think probably obstetricians are even more skewed, many of them, compared with the rest. And so... Unfortunately, this language of suffering and um, difficulty and struggle and all this rhetoric is often used in in cases like Down syndrome. And the contrast as a pediatrician, I've cared for many babies with Down syndrome. And when a diagnosis is made after birth, the language is completely different. We talk about, you know... This is a child who's with all this potential and we're going to do the very best to make them maximize everything they have of the possibility and we can provide this sort of resources and so on. So, and I've had mothers say, well, how can it be that these two things are the same? And, and in fact, somebody wrote a paper on this called Twice Told Stories. The story that is told before birth is totally different from the story that's told after birth. But I'm afraid this is part of us from a spiritual point of view. Again, this is the way the evil one works. It works by confusing and twisting language and, um, and it's very subtle and all-pervasive. And so we have to fight back by, yes, being very careful about the words we use 
and by demonstrating with our lives that we show, we put our money where our mouth is. We demonstrate. And I would love to see this work, these crisis pregnancy centers providing a safe place. Uh, it would be wonderful if this could really take off in Northern Ireland and be seen as a positive, compassionate Christian response. Um, just very briefly, uh, thank you very much, um, and thank you, Donna, as well. I mean, I think that you bring up something that is incredibly important, and 14 years ago, whenever I first graduated, I was actually a special needs teacher, um, and I worked with children with all sorts of additional needs, um, and Down syndrome actually was one of the predominant um, conditions that, you know, um, in the school, and uh, I mean, the children they just they just made me laugh you know as um with with all of their um emotion but and one of the things that strikes me now looking back is that i remember back then the teacher said to me so i was only just out of training and i i, I was um subbing in the school and a teacher said to me you know there's no specific teacher training for children with special needs so our special needs schools the teachers just sort of fall into it and why is that the case you know as you say um whenever we talk about babies that don't have conditions why do we make that distinction don said earlier on we're not forced birthers it's actually cheaper for government to provide abortion than it is to provide a lifetime of care um, in whatever crisis pregnancy happens to be, but in most specifically for that lifetime of care for our children that do have a disability, and that's not acceptable, and we do need to stand up because the irony is that come the Special Olympics... Our government will be standing up and cheering and saying, aren't we wonderful? Look at our people who are partaking in the Special Olympics. But that doesn't equate in the day-to-day living of those people, of those children with disabilities. So we have to do better. We have to demand better. We have to demand the same for all of our children. Um, and the resources need to be put in pre-birth and post-birth to continue with that child and that family. Thank you. We have run over our time thank you all i do want to encourage you to please lift you have five mlas we've given everybody one of these if you could lift a little bundle and post them that would be great there are more booklets we are and will be here for a few more minutes if you'd like to come and speak to us thank you again for coming thank you and then um, Just to say as well that Catherine is here from the prayer ministry um, here at New Horizons, so she's sitting here in the front row. If anybody would like to pray about anything that has been raised um, this morning, please come and find Catherine or find somebody in the prayer ministry tent. And thank you to all three of you just for your courageous and compassionate leadership on this. We, We appreciate it so much. Thank you.